0: Critics suggest that the entire notion of schools as meritocracies actually reifies and reinforces class privilege, making those whom school rewards, those who already have a lot of benefits, feel they deserve the privilege they have, and those who don't, feel they deserve to embrace the void. ever gonna make it back from the void i suppose it was gonna be you oh well you know one man's void is another man's piece of cake what about the reality we left behind what about the reality where hitler cured cancer morty the answer is don't think about it people assume that time is a
1: strict progression of cause to effect but actually from a non-linear non-subjective viewpoint it's more
0: like a big ball of wibbly wobbly timey-wimey stuff This podcast contains foul language dark invocations and treating women like their people welcome friends to episode 229 of embrace the void where we are on track to get off track i am your host aaron and this week we are talking educational policy so let's make with the sorting hat life ends in death which we as a species are cursed with knowing resulting in something my guest this week is tracing woodgrains the editorial assistant for the podcast blocked and reported and an online writer who focuses on education and cultural issues trace would you like to say hi to the void hey How's it going, Void? Good. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you reaching out, too. This started with some just private chatting about various topics, and then you linked me to some of your writing, which I really enjoyed, and one topic in particular that's near and dear to my heart, which is the issue of tracking in schools. So I'm excited to have a chat with you about that. Before we get into that, do you want to tell folks just a little bit about, like, your background and what gets you interested in issues like tracking and education?
1: Yeah, absolutely. My overall background, I'm a gay ex-Mormon who grew up in Utah and who uh, spent most of my life in this very, very peculiar niche of society that has surprisingly little in common with the rest of the world, it feels like. And since then, I have uh, left that, gone into the rest of the world and been sort of wandering around trying to find my place and trying to find a route that I am satisfied with through life. Mm -hmm. In particular with education, I have been my whole life passionate about it from the standpoint of feeling like schools are doing a great disservice to a lot of advanced students in them, feeling that there's been a general... Uh, focus in American education to set a very specific minimum bar that it expects all students to reach and once a student reaches that bar it basically says you're on your own godspeed take care of yourself and that this leads a lot of students to feeling as if they are underachieving and underdirected and feel frustrated with all of that. So my own experience with the education system was an almost uniformly negative one in which I basically struggled my whole process through it to find a path that was satisfying and effective for me. Um, In K-12, I started out in a public school, shifted in sixth grade to an online charter school. Uh, skipped a grade and shifted back to public school in eighth grade only to go to uh, another charter school uh, this one in person uh, in throughout high school and then uh, my college history is a little mm-hmm. and I won't get into it too much only to say that the main public part of it is that I attended BYU for it a time back in utah before mm-hmm. uh stepping away from it for a
0: range of uh personal reasons <laughs> fair enough fair enough yes yeah, so you yourself have had experiences with some of the like techniques that we are looking at uh today particularly it sounds like the the topic of acceleration which is not necessarily tracking but is related and you'll talk about that in your piece as well just to share you know i've also i come to this from a personal experience of like having been effectively tracked into like gifted and then like ib programs in such a way that at the time was was a positive experience for me and in hindsight i have sort of moral questions about like what does that mean in terms of being given those particular kinds of advantages so but let's let's just say before we get into the tracking stuff so the piece we're talking about is one that you wrote in what was described as the adversarial collaboration contest uh which is a funny name to me um this is over on slate star codex and the you 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 collaborated with a guy named michael persian and from you know from my perspective i thought y'all did a really good job kind of giving a nuanced account of the trade-offs about the issue. So could you start maybe a little bit by sort of describing what the adversarial collaboration contest was and how you and Michael ended up working on this together?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So adversarial collaboration in the scientific sphere specifically was popularized by a famous psychologist and behavioral economist, Daniel Kahneman, who used it a few times in his own uh, process of research to great results. So the general concept, as he described it, is to sit down and work on a scientific question together with someone you disagree with on that question and end up writing a paper on it uh, in which both of you sign off on the full product without hedging, like, one of us believes this, the other of us believes this, but Mm -hmm. to be able to get together Mm -hmm. and figure out exactly what you can say in unity on this topic that you disagree on so scott alexander Mm -hmm. seeing that concept and being interested in the nature of disagreements and the nature of online conversation in general decided to apply it in a less formal context through this contest provided a few ground rules and basically uh encouraged people to do just that except instead of publishing the result as a paper in a scientific journal they would just publish the result as a blog post and then the winners would Mm -hmm. get money for it so i got involved in it seeing this call for adversarial collaborations and being an arrogant young guy who thinks he has something to say and has Mm -hmm. a little bit of a chip on his shoulder uh Mm -hmm. it was like all right i have these very strong opinions on education That I think it's failing advanced students, that I think the move against tracking is destructive, that there is a lot about online education that has untapped potential that we need to explore. Just a few Mm -hmm. very strong, Mm -hmm. rapid-fire opinions, basically seeing who will bite. In comes Mm -hmm. this uh, thoughtful, smart, and polite New York City math teacher um, who uh, has been teaching for a while at... uh, private school in the city and mm-hmm. is very knowledgeable about the subject uh popped in and was like you know i uh, i don't really agree with you on that and in the end uh we worked together on it for a uh, hundred hours a couple hundred hours not wow. all, not that much of course specifically on writing the paper itself out but the collaboration was uh an incredibly intellectually enriching activity that basically involved me saying something that seemed obvious to me and him Mm -hmm. disagreeing for reasons that I had not in any way anticipated. And Mm -hmm. that had just the right amount of feeling that someone is wrong on the internet, this feeling of um, needing to prove something and a little bit of aggravation with a little bit of curiosity To keep pushing Mm -hmm. us forward and pushing us further and further into the depths of obscure literature on the topic and on a bunch of related topics Um, Mm -hmm. basically what would happen is we would zoom in say yeah we agree on this data this data looks right this makes sense we're good we're on the same page here and then we'd zoom out and as soon as we hit the therefore Mm-hmm. This data looks good. Therefore, my conclusion is this. Therefore, my conclusion is this. Suddenly, we'd veer in wildly different directions again and go back to the drawing board. And this happened again and again throughout the process. Uh,
0: until do, you, we... do you have a sense of why? Was it differences in your like value, you know, weighting of different values or like um, were you just like logically getting to very different places in your inferences? Do you have any sense of, of what was going on there? Yeah, I do. I think a lot of it was weighting different values, and a
1: lot of it was reflections on what we had experienced throughout our educational backgrounds. He had Mm -hmm. a really positive time throughout school. He ended up um, going to Harvard, having a fantastic, enriching experience throughout his whole education process, and then teaching in an environment where he was uh, around a lot of capable and bright and motivated kids. Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, uh, as I'd said, my experience was more uniformly negative throughout school and uh, was left with a, a big feeling of what could be. So his approach to the education system is one where he has a sense that most of it is working pretty much as well as can be expected where we can look for small incremental changes here and there, but there's a good reason everything is the way it is. And anything too big is both not really feasible and not really necessary. Whereas Mm -hmm. my feeling and what it came uh, back to me was seeing areas where things were going terribly wrong or where things just didn't make sense and, uh, being, uh, Frustrated again and again with these perceived inefficiencies and uh, senseless barriers and complications in the system. So Mm -hmm. I would say that general contentment with the education system versus dissatisfaction with it. And of course, that's an oversimplification. But Mm -hmm. that general feeling, I think, is what led to the most uh, divergence
0: when we kept zooming back up. Interesting. That makes some sense. And it's interesting that it's a, it's a mix of the, like, valuing and personal experiences and that sort of thing and not necessarily, like, formal logical disagreement or something like that. Um, so let's dive into the details here a little bit. So let's start with just the very basics for folks who, like, have no idea what we're talking about at this point. Um, what is tracking in an educational context? What do we mean by this term? Right.
1: So tracking in an
0: educational context
1: is... Um, In its most central case, it's separation of classes into higher and lower categories depending on one of the tested aptitude, academic progress, or individual choice of students. The center of the debate in the U.S. context, particularly in, say, California right now, is the question of whether all same-aged students should be in the same mathematics courses or whether you should have uh, algebra, geometry, so forth, available as soon as any given student is ready to take them. But other mm-hmm. examples that would fall under the same umbrella include gifted programs, magnet schools, AP courses, or in some other countries, for example, Germany, systems where people test into different levels of secondary school that prepare them for and sort of soft lock them onto distinct professional paths, where in Germany, the gymnasium is designed for university preparation, the real school for more complex, uh, complex apprenticeships and trades, and the middle school or half for the rest. So tracking Mm -hmm. is typically distinguished in education papers from ability grouping, which takes place within a single classroom, but in common parlance, they're used fairly interchangeably.
0: Okay, great. And y'all describe, you know, you sort of frame tracking as one potential solution to a problem, which is a, a genuine, sort of widespread problem in classrooms, which is the issue of sort of students at different points in their educational journey. For folks who are not familiar, who haven't spent, you know, a lot of time in a classroom, maybe since they were a student or weren't sort of aware of things, from the teacher's perspective, can you sort of explain how this problem works and what the potential solutions might be if we, for a second, set aside tracking and other sorts of rearranging of bodies kind of approaches?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the fundamental problem is that students, every student, uh, will differ in all three of intelligence, prior learning, and conscientiousness or work ethic from essentially every other student. Some students will grasp in a minute what takes others days or weeks. Some will come to classrooms with the parents who read nightly to them, who gave them math worksheets, who send them to extra tutoring, who who have both the resources and the inclination to go above and beyond. Others have unstable home lives or parents who simply cannot afford similar luxuries. Some students are conscientious and prepared to do all their work on time. Others are distractible and bored. And what happens in every classroom and every school is that teachers and admins need to figure out how to meet the needs of all of these students at once, which is a constant struggle and a constant uh, question in essentially every education system. The path I see most frequently advocated within single classrooms is what's known as differentiated education. Uh, The idea that teachers will come prepared to each classroom prepared with flexible activities that provide multiple potential levels of comprehension, whether that's enrichment work for kids who finish tasks early, small group breakouts with a teacher wandering between groups, open-ended classroom activities that out- clear quantitative outcomes, that sort of thing. Uh, another approach that keeps students in the same room but at different paces is a simple technological solution to give each kid an iPad or a laptop with a set curriculum on it, then let them work through it at their own pace with teachers monitoring and providing help as needed. This sort of thing is especially common for electives like typing that are more naturally suited to that approach. And then for things like elementary school reading education, you'll see things like graded readers and in-class ability grouping, where books at different levels are provided for different kids during open-ended reading time, and the teacher helps these groups. Uh, Lastly, one thing you'll see fairly regularly is a suggestion to have more prepared students uh, help out in some way in the classroom, such as helping to tutor their less prepared peers on any given subject with fast finishers turning around and sitting with slow finishers to help them along, for example. Now, Mm -hmm. when it comes to this sort of same group differentiated education, there are several major downsides I see. So most directly, this sort of solution asks a great deal of teachers. For obvious Mm -hmm. reasons in every class, teachers tend to spend more class time on lower performing students than higher performing ones. Um, It's a big ask basically, to have them notice smart kids and proactively provide further challenges for them that go beyond the standard lesson scope. It's not going to be the main focus of any class period. Any time spent helping one group trades off against time spent helping another. And there mm-hmm. are complications in every, in that vein every time you try to have genuine differentiation in a classroom. So what happens a lot of times at least from my perspective, is that it turns into a sort of buzzword where a lot of classrooms will claim to practice differentiated education and very few will end up having this really substantive feeling, yes, these students at different levels in the same course Mm -hmm. are being challenged equally in the same period. That's Mm -hmm. not the fault of any overpaid or overworked and underpaid teachers. Um, It's a system asking unrealistic things of them.
0: But yeah, and that that is a yeah. common problem I find where like even amongst like sort of what we think of as the alternatives to this sort of thing, there's so often is this implication that the solution is more work for the teachers right. um, and that and that's often an unfunded kind of mandate. I also want to note um, you know the way that you were framing it there, I don't want to give folks the, the misimpression that, these problems rest on belief about things like IQ, for example. Um, You know, there's a whole separate debate about IQ and the nature of IQ and what is it tracking and is it reliable and that sort of thing. Um, And I just think it's important to note that even folks who are skeptical of something like smart kids versus versus not smart kids or something like that, still readily acknowledge all the other kinds of differences and challenges that you mentioned earlier that can, you know, result in students being at different places. So, I mean, in effect, this is none of this is meant to be a judgment on either teachers or students, Um, you know, to put it in the kind of language that I often use on the show. This is about sort of acknowledging different sort of levels of luck that the students have experienced and where they are at in their, you know, epistemic progress as a result of that luck. Um, Would you you sort of agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with it. Um, I would Mm -hmm. also add that
1: um, as far as IQ and things like that go, that really the main important consideration when it comes to a school-aged child is the question of whether some kids will learn some topics faster than other kids will learn those same topics. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the main difference that uh, someone would need to uh, agree with to have a meaningful conversation on what to do when you encounter those differences. Uh, setting mm-hmm. aside any questions of environment versus genetics early on in life, anything like that. Once a child arrives at school and one learns this subject really quickly and one learns it really slowly what do you do with that
0: right and so i just put sort of the other options on the board here and then we can sort of talk about different trade-offs here so another approach that y'all discuss is acceleration um why distinguish this from tracking and why do you see this as sort of what are the costs and benefits do you feel like between tracking and acceleration
1: right so A lot of tracking would fit into a subset of what would be considered acceleration. So Mm -hmm. things like gifted programs, for example, could rightly be considered a form of both tracking and education. Um, The main, one of the main differences to look at is that a lot of times acceleration will be more on an individualized scale and can involve a lot more uh, extreme uh, measures than uh, say than just splitting groups of students up into, you know, high, middle, low sections. So acceleration can involve grade skipping. It can involve pull-out portions where you're this one student is going to a different class for this subject. It can involve basically anything that means this student is learning more material at a faster rate than their same-aged peers. Mm-hmm. Um, The benefits of this sort of individualized acceleration is that it can smoothly handle the sort of outliers that school systems struggle to handle in general and struggle to respond to in general. So when one student is blazing through every math worksheet in their elementary school class and is just bored to tears the whole time, um, simply uh, pushing them up a grade or two in math and sitting them with the older students can immediately give them the opportunity to engage on a lot of things that they otherwise would miss. However, Mm -hmm. that bespoke individualized nature of it is also its downside in that Mm -hmm. you have to rely on having uh, teachers and administrators who, and parents who are willing to notice that this is something that could benefit this child that Mm -hmm. are in a position to notice. This is something that could benefit this child and that, understand the most effective ways to act on it. And so it's very reliant on someone saying, hey, maybe skipping a grade would help you. Hey, maybe Mm -hmm. going to a higher level in this subject would help you, which makes it a particularly uh, poor fit for students who are, for whatever reason, going to be overlooked by those people, whether it's Uh because they're lazy and disruptive in class and the teacher Uh, doesn't notice it or whether it's because they're from a disadvantaged background and the school isn't prepared to uh, identify talent from those positions a bunch of reasons Mm -hmm. that uh, would be the main challenge i see with that sort of individualized acceleration
0: yeah and when y'all were digging into that did you so i mean like one immediate concern that folks i think would obviously have hearing that description is you know the odds that that sort of system is going to advantage sort of already privileged individuals from non-marginalized groups and you think about like the history of the way that um you know students especially boys of color in particular if they sort of act out in the ways that may be common for someone who is bored in class um that they may be viewed not as someone in need of acceleration in the same way that uh, pretend, potentially, like a white student might be. Did you find that there was any kind of data to support that there were those kinds of biases in the way that acceleration took place?
1: So the data on that overall, I would say, is mixed. Uh, there mm-hmm. are there are some indications towards that sort of thing. Um, the mm, the most important thing with regard to something like that, I would say, is things like that are a reason basically not to rely on teacher judgments that um basically it's not it's not straightforward to say yes teachers are definitely uh, consciously advantaging this demographic group or that demographic group however it is straightforward to say that uh when you're relying on that sort of vague personal judgment then you are going to miss a lot of the picture. And so one uh, measure I'm quite fond of in terms of acceleration is universal screening programs where you proactively uh, test uh, kids across the board, and you're like, okay, uh, we're providing this for everyone. We're preparing them. We're taking a look at it. What does it show as far as which of them might be underserved in their current situations? And mm-hmm. in saying that also, one thing I want to emphasize is that there's a tendency to view this sort of thing potentially as a privilege that, oh, you're going faster in school. Oh, you're skipping a grade, whatever. That that's an indication of privilege. And I think the more mm-hmm. productive way to look at it is that it is a way to meet needs that are being unmet for that child, that mm-hmm. it's not going to be appropriate for every child. There's a reason grades go at the pace they do. There's a reason students in general learn at the pace they do. However, if a student's needs are not being met in that situation, you want to have an alternative. Lastly, I'll say that uh, one thing that on your note of uh, black boy, young black boys who might be bored and disruptive, or I know I was a young white boy who got bored and far too disruptive mm-hmm. pretty often, is that the... Um, the smart and lazy kids and the really hard-working kids uh i've heard it put the gifted and the grinders are not the same and don't have the same needs so whereas acceleration could be a really useful tool for someone who's bored who's disruptive who's acting out in class who knows it all already and wants to show they know it all already uh it could be a really destructive tool for someone who just puts their nose down does the work is Mm -hmm. really effective and reliable at getting the work in on time but then you accelerate them faster and they're like, now I have to do even more work. I was already working hard to keep up. I didn't need to work harder in this case.
0: And so, so they burn out. Yeah. Right. Right. That makes sense. Um, so let's uh, talk a little bit. Uh, you know, this is getting into what I found sort of one of the things I like most about it, which was the discussion of like the competing educational goals. Uh, before we get to that, though, I think it'd be helpful to just say a little bit about Sort of your sense of the current data on the effects of tracking, like you said, you came into this with a lot of strong intuitions about what you thought would be the effects of tracking. Do you feel like those intuitions you know uh, persisted as you met with reality in various kinds of statistical ways, or what is your um, view on the the strengths and weaknesses of tracking at this point?
1: Yeah, so my intuitions overall persisted along with uh, the occupational hazard of an ever-increasing urge to say, look, it's complicated,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: which I think is probably a pretty common <laughs> experience diving into the familiar-,
0: <laughs> familiar with the experience, yes, go ahead. Yes.
1: So there are two ways that I can answer this. The first is that the meta-analyses and papers are reviewed consistently seem to show a picture of significantly positive impacts on higher groups and ambiguous impacts on lower groups should the curriculum differ between the two groups. And very few notable differences in attainment if curriculum remains the same between groups. Um, data from developing countries, like in a frequently cited and ambitious random controlled trial from Kenya, um, cited by the World Bank in policy papers and uh, other global contexts, it suggests weak but lasting positive impacts across all ability groups. Um, Mm. There are also a lot of qualitative, more qualitative studies that indicate um, uh, downside of poorly done low tracks, where you see some discouraging low quality environments in which students uh, report basically just, you know, being in holding chambers or something to that effect.
0: Um, Right. That's That's often one of the major concerns, right? That like so significant potential concerns for folks on the low end of tracking and then the flip side concern is there isn't actually that much benefit for the folks who are tracked at the top end or the two i think that i've heard in terms of concerns right that second concern um mostly comes at
1: least from when we were diving into the literature it looked to us like that uh, second concern the primary original source of it was this meta-analysis review by bob slavin who was a great education researcher a very thoughtful guy but what it came down to was looking at these uh they were called xyz tracking programs back in the 60s where they Mm -hmm. sorted groups into high middle and low and then had the exact same curriculum for every group and Mm -hmm. that's that's the primary claim source for that claim is where the curriculum just didn't change a set of uh Classes he excluded from his meta-analysis and then the other major meta-analysis at that time included uh, Mm -hmm. by researchers uh, Kulik and Kulik, uh, a husband and wife, was that once you put uh, gifted programs in and these programs that actively changed the curriculum for the top level, you saw pretty substantial improvements at the high end.
0: Interesting. Okay. So, and and like... And it's, it's important to note here, I think, that, like, the question of whether we should use tracking is not, as you say, it's a, it's a complicated question because it involves a mix of these empirical questions and still other ethical questions, right? So, like, it, you know, if we if we found out, for example, that it hugely benefited the top end and didn't harm, like, you know, lower end students or whatever, however we want to refer to them, right, like then it would be an easier ethical question but we might still have some people who would say it's still wrong on a fundamental deontological level or something like that um but if we have complex you know if we have mixed data on the kind of thing then we have a fairly open question about like what should our you know conclusions be and this is where i thought y'all did a great job of emphasizing that like there are these competing irreducible goals for education, that education is not just a a learning maximization business, as you put it. I'm curious, was one of your intuitions going into this that like education is a learning maximization business. And so why aren't we using this thing that will maximize educate? Was that like one spot where you feel like your impressions about this shifted some?
1: So I actually, I wouldn't say my impressions shifted so much Mm -hmm. as I came in saying Education's not in the learning maximization business, but it should be. And I, see. I left uh-huh. saying education's still not in the learning maximization business, but I still really feel like it should be. And I still I really see. feel like a lot of learning and a lot of expertise is being left on the table. And I understand mm-hmm. that it's not in this business, but I really want it to be in this business.
0: You still really want it to be. I see, I see. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So what are the what are the like competing um, educational goals that y'all highlighted that, you know, maybe you feel like are getting more emphasis than this other kind of um, goal?
1: Right. So uh, historian David Labry, uh who we cite in the paper, identifies three of them. So he identifies democratic equality, uh, that is education as a mechanism for producing capable citizens, social efficiency, that is education as a mechanism for developing productive workers, and social mobility. That is, education as a way for individuals to reinforce or improve their social positions. Mm -hmm. Um, So those were the three he highlighted. Uh, For me, it reduces down perhaps further uh, to things that pretty much everyone shares intuitions on to a degree in education, which are that we want to foster equality and we want to foster excellence. Um, There's a Mm -hmm. lot packed into each of those words, and more or less everyone favors both depending on how they're presented. Uh, But my point in narrowing it down to that is to look at that fundamental tension. The second you allow Mm -hmm. someone to become more excellent, you've reduced equality. Um, Going back to your example of a privileged student uh, who goes into accelerated classes and so forth, the further they push, the less equal, uh, potentially the more they're getting ahead of others further mm-hmm. uh, anyone... A-
0: especially it. if there's resource trade-offs involved as well, right? Especially right. if especially
1: like... if there are resource trade-offs, but even all else being equal, even there are no resource right. trade-offs you're spending is you spend the same amount of resources on each student. Um, that's, you know, equality of resources being provided. One student mm-hmm. goes much further, much faster with those same resources. You still end up with uh, the same sort of inequality creeping in and... So uh, Mm -hmm. there's a sense in which both the lens that this progression is love of learning and progression is the opportunity to uh, extend oneself further and to not be held back by the school not be held back by uh, teachers putting artificial barriers on progression and education as reinforcing privilege. There is a sense in which they are both true. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot comes down to, that tension and that sense that uh, while uh-huh. we all value e- equality and we all value excellence, there is an t- inherent tension between those two variables.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure I'd even want to use the word equality here. I feel more comfortable using something like fairness, or I know you know some folks are not going to like it, but some a word like equity or something, something that takes into account that like the goal is not to make sure that everybody is equal in some artificial sense. It's to make sure that everybody is getting fairly treated in terms of like equalities of opportunity and things like that as much as possible or something, right?
1: Right. Um, yeah. And I-, I like that, especially because I share your intuition that so there's this, you know, there's the straw man version of equality that someone could point to. You know, everyone reaches I, I, the same level of math and English knowledge. Right. Your Harrison Bergeron. your university. <laughs> everyone enters a white collar profession. Um, and, you know, if at any point a student falters or leaps too far ahead on this, they're nudged onto that track and made to feel foolish. And no mm-hmm. one really believes that. I would argue that a lot of the educational system's assumptions end up sort of reflecting that idea, but, but nobody actually believes that. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well,
0: you, you mentioned that it reflects those ideas. And I think this is another interesting, like, what y'all have described there to me reads like a fundamentally progressive account of education, right? In the sense, for example, that, like, y'all assume part of the goal is social mobility, where there is a history in the education lit of people actively rejecting, like, that being the primary function of education in favor of something closer to what y'all talk about with, like, citizens, but mostly in the sense of like workers, right? Like putting people, giving people the education, the functional education that they need to exist at the level of social status or strata that they are best suited for or something um, like that. And so like, there's a kind of implicit, you know, argument about fairness built into the way that y'all have already described the goal of education, which to me seems to sort of lean in one particular uh, direction, I'm curious: Do you like? Do you agree that that is true? Do you feel like we should generally just exclude the sort of traditional conservative factory model approach to education as just being outdated?
1: So, I don't know that I would. I, I wouldn't describe that as a account of the a full account of the conservative take mm-hmm. on education. Um, So there's this really despicable frame that forms sort of uh, the shadow version of a frame I'm fond of, uh, exemplified recently when Pennsylvania Senators Attorney John Krill asked, you know, what use would someone on the McDonald's career track have for Algebra 1? This sort of employing dismissal of some as unworthy to educate. Um, However, I would say the fully realized form of this uh, conservative vision of it, um, in as much as I understand it, is this, uh, vision of, uh, diversity of excellence that for me personally, you know, I'm not interested in telling people the station they're best suited for, but I am interested in being and feeling genuinely valuable to the people around me, not just as a weaker version of some brilliant mathematician, like say Terence Tao, um, but as a fully developed version of myself in a niche others cannot or will not fill. Um, And there's this sort of shadow version of the alternate um, that happens when you, this uh, reaction to, well, everyone should take Algebra 1, where uh, uh, the shadow version of that sort of becomes a conviction that all children must appreciate Algebra 1, that if a student dislikes it and is bad at it, they become a problem to be fixed throughout their educational career that they should be mm-hmm. made to take algebra one again and again in junior high and high school and the first year of college. Well, the whole time they're doing really spectacularly well at graphic design and getting better at their art while walking miserable into and out of math classes every day and having those classes measurably impact their prospects and measurably, impe- measurably impact their opportunities. Um, mm-hmm. This idea that uh, it is about social mobility and it is about um, giving people an opportunity to find their niches. And you neither want to force people into the niche of you're not worth educating, nor the niche of we must have you learn these things, or we have failed in our tasks to you and you have failed in your task to us.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, now, is, is mobility for you um like is that an end in itself or to me it seems like it's a means to an end where like to me the goal of education is the flourishing of individuals and that might not necessarily involve social mobility it, it, like it might not ne- invite like to me it seems like centering social mobility in this way it's partly the result of a implicit acknowledgement that like people need social mobility to have lives of flourishing in our society because a lot of people don't get to have lives of flourishing because of where they are on the economic ladder. And and then it becomes this conversation about like, you know, are we using education to try to fix an upstream economic problem where what we need to be doing is like radically redistributing a lot of wealth. And then like our education system should be more about you know, like you're saying, if somebody really is into art, then then we let them focus on art and not make them learn a bunch of math or something like that. Right. So that's that's the Freddie DeBoer
1: take, um, mm-hmm. and he goes into that take very specifically a great deal in his book, The Cult of Smart, and that's his overall thesis: is that schools are inherently engines of inequality, and that we are trying to force them to fulfill a role of equality that they are simply not designed to fill. That there is a broader social context to change to address um, and that trying to address it through schools is uh pounding uh um round peg into a square hole square peg into round hole what have you um mm-hmm. i uh i sympathize with this sense in a, a lot of generalities and uh have differences in a lot of specifics um i but where I sympathize and where I agree is that you do not want a society where somebody needs to be smart to be happy. You do not want mm-hmm. a society where somebody needs to be highly educated to live a meaningful, comfortable life. You do mm-hmm. not want a society where um, you stratify people by intelligence, um, by uh, or by um, education, and then say, if you have uh, rolled high on this, then you will have a comfortable and happy life. If you have rolled low on this, then uh, our system is set up for you to fail. That's not what you mm-hmm. want. Um, mm-hmm. However, going back to so going back to the question of unfairness in education specifically. Uh, I think it's useful to highlight some examples of how it looks in practice, this difference between unfairness and equality of everyone being, the the straw man of equality being all at the same level. So Mm -hmm. some examples that move me in terms of unfairness in education are an example of a student who is good at math, but bad at studying, who ends up coasting coasting through their classes their whole life, reaching adulthood, confident that they're a genius without ever having faced a real challenge. And then they fold at the first inevitable reality check that that student has fundamentally been poorly served by the education system. Even if they scored at the 99th percentile on every standardized test, even if they aced the SAT and did well in every class, they did not get Mm -hmm. what they needed to get out of the educational system that it let that student down. Similarly, that Mm -hmm. example of the student who's hardworking and ambitious bad at math and is forced to take and repeat algebra one, um, without ever actually needing the material in it and being significantly impacted in their life prospects, going to a worse college, uh, going, uh, not getting a scholarship, things like that, because of this uh, requirement for something that uh, was not what they needed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, mm-hmm. Or specifically with, say, a detracking plan, a school district implements that A poor, bright, hardworking student ends up working faithfully through that trap presented to them. They end up towards the top of their school. They did basically everything their school expected of them. And then they go to a top university and suddenly they're surrounded by these rich, bright, hardworking students from the same area who had both the resources and the system knowledge to find workarounds through tutoring, private schools, and who have suddenly taken far more classes and understand far more and are far deeper into that subject than the poor student ever Mm -hmm. had presented to them Mm um or uh a student who sits in classes where teachers pay minimal attention to them because the school is rated by the percent of students above an arbitrary baseline as with the no child left behind system and the student Mm -hmm. is never in danger of falling below that baseline so the teacher just can't afford to waste as much attention on them when they're systemic incentives to raise
0: people to that baseline. They're not a bubble student, as we call them. Right,
1: right. Uh, You're not on the bubble. You don't exist. Um, Right. So
0: these are all all things that worry you in terms of, like, forms of unfairness that can arise or or problems that can arise in education.
1: Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, That to really get at unfairness in education, you need to look a lot beyond what people typically look at, which are, you know, test scores, percent of students passing uh this arbitrary benchmark for reading this arbitrary benchmark for math anything like that Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. to the specific experiences of students are these students um, Uh in a position where they need to work hard develop uh effective skills are they being pushed towards the edge of their abilities are they being artificially constrained by barriers that they don't need to be artificially constrained by Are they being forced Mm -hmm. down a path that they shouldn't be forced to? Step down, yeah, things like that
0: yeah, great, so so this brings up i mean this also I think brings in another common concern with issues of tracking, which is you know one thing that education does is impact our self image our understanding of ourselves, um and so you gave the example of the student who like gets it in their heads that they're a genius and never have to work, and then they hit you know real challenges at, down the line um you know the the flip side version of that, of course, is the classic concern that like somebody who is tracked into a, you know, lower track adopts this kind of habitus or self, you know, image that they are less good at this sort of thing and they internalize that and they work less on that particular thing or something like that. So I'm curious, in y'all's research, how much did you find like genuine evidence of, you know, these individuals are experiencing negative psychological impacts, either because they're being tracked into like low status tracking programs or conversely, they're being tracked into things like gifted programs and they get the impression that they're gifted. And so it becomes an internalizing of, you know, I have a gift, not I need to work hard or something like that.
1: Yeah. Um, So getting tracked into gifted programs has the opposite uh, effect of that in that it's self image is relative, not absolute. So Mm -hmm. a really smart 10-year-old, the smartest 10-year-old in the world, put in a room full of smart 18-year-olds, for example, they are not going to have the self-image of being brilliant and capable at everything because everyone around them will be better at them than everything. However, if you find yourself the smartest person from your perspective in every room that you're in, you're really going to lean into this image of, yourself as smart first and foremost Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and so in terms of uh gifted programs having that impact um the studies we looked into doesn't really look like that's present in terms of Mm -hmm. low track uh courses having that impact uh it really it depends on the quality of the low track courses um there were some for example in some catholic schools that we looked at where they took those students seriously they provided them a lot of opportunities, a lot of enrichment. They didn't just use it as a holding cell. And so the question is Mm -hmm. more the nature of those classes than whether those classes exist. And I mean, to go even more broadly than that, like, look, kids notice things. If you're sitting in a class with a bunch of students, you notice if you're working twice as hard, for half as much progress as the student on the next row over. You notice if the teacher's always coming over to help you and you're always the help when you pair up with other students and never the helper. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I I spent a while as a substitute teacher, and one example of this was really striking to me, Uh, an extreme example, but uh, one that has caused me a lot of thought, where I spent a few days at this transitional center for intellectually disabled young adults, so around 18 years old, who had capabilities somewhere around that of an average five-year-old. Now, in most settings, you encounter someone like that in Uh, you're not going to get much of a sense of their individual personality. You're not going to get much of a sense of who they are as a person. You're going to get a sense of them in contrast to uh, everyone else around them and often end up overlooking them. In this school, what I found fascinating and really encouraging about it really was seeing the way everyone's personality shines through that. Suddenly, in this environment with peers, some of them were very clearly the leaders of the group. Some of them were very clearly star students. Some of them were very clearly ready to help others and um, ready to set an example for their peers. Um, and it created, to my perception, uh, more positive experience by dint of that. So I think mm-hmm. the r- framing of social positions as relative to one's environment is really key to understanding that question. That in mixed mm-hmm. environments, it, it, it's simply not the case that in mixed environments, all those concerns go away and the smart kids uh, don't end up thinking of themselves as, like, oh yeah, I'm brilliant and can just coast. And the slower kids don't end up thinking of themselves as uh, mm-hmm. struggling with school. The more mm-hmm. mixed the environment is, I feel like the more that sort of feeling starts creeping in. Mm-hmm. Because that. All right, all that's, a, that's a good point. Yeah, I
0: think I, I don't. I don't. I'm not. Um, I don't know all of the research on that, but I think that is a reasonable sort of pushback, and I do think that it is. It is tricky to assess these sorts of things, and that the likelihood is that students get signals from a lot of different places about their sort of relative status, and that it would be fairly difficult to have. So, for example, there's also studies that find that like. If you do the like in group in class version of tracking that we talked about at the beginning, where it's like different reading levels or something like that, students can tell even if you don't like make it ever explicit or something like that there's this kind of sort of they implicitly pick up on the differentiation in that kind of way um so i'm I'm sympathetic to what you're what you're saying there um so we're starting to come a little short on time, and I wanted to spend a little bit of time here, obviously there's lots more. Tangents we could run down, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, the way that tracking is discussed in news and popular discourse, because I feel like this is one of a couple of education related issues that often pops up. Um, In the culture war, for example, I think there was most recently a big dust up over New York City's plan to remove advanced courses or to, to sort of change their approach to advanced courses in substantial ways or something like that. So, like, what is your feeling about how this stuff gets, you know, used, weaponized, discussed in culture war settings?
1: It's it's incredibly frustrating, basically, is what it is. I feel like these culture war framings are really, really toxic in the field of education. Um, and there are a lot of lurking ideas that pop up again and again um, that uh, I just internally scream every time I see. So there's the lurking idea that the most challenging schools are a reward and others are a punishment rather than each being tools targeting a distinct set of academic needs. There's this lurking idea that a kid might have been failed by themselves, their school, their parents, or society uh, as um, if they didn't fall in love with that master math. Like that, that they were definitely failed if that didn't happen. Uh, or the idea that parents who want their kids in advanced programs are doing so out of this toxic desire to privilege their kids above others uh, rather than responding to the child's academic need. The idea that like university entrance should be this ranking of every person from best to worst and the best people go to the Ivy league schools and the, the worst people go to state schools and the worst people, uh, just don't go to college altogether. Um, rather than a matching of a need with an individual, uh, or this, uh, obsession with test scores to determine whether a school is succeeding or failing. Like there's a lot and it all ties in together with this specifically Mm -hmm. with tracking the culture warp framing with it. Um, the most discouraging thing for me is looking around and seeing people treat it as this existential battle between good and evil. The thing about education mm-hmm. is that every person who becomes seriously invested in questions around education wants what's best for kids. Like, you're just not going to find serious people in the conversation who think, you know, I really just want those kids to have miserable re- childhoods i i I really just want to make them suffer um and i won't downplay the competing priorities that people have i prioritize striving towards excellence above all in my own frame around education and the more others weigh uh, their own priorities above that the more likely we are to find areas to butt heads on um i feel Mm -hmm. a special kinship towards the frustrated smart kids that's born out of experience with a lot of them And at times, I do think others need to remind me of and advocate for the needs of other groups. But Mm -hmm. like, you can't help but fall in love with a room full of students when you walk into a classroom. And um, while differences can and do exist, and public schools do always serve as a compromise between these interests and reality, it's just not a struggle against cartoonish villains. It's against reasonable and well-meaning people pursuing their vision of the good. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes a lot of these debates so intractable. And in the media, there's very frequently a temptation to simplify it and to create a hero and a villain narrative and to create this image where, say, these uh, people want to perpetuate privilege and inequity and destroy opportunities, climb the ladder, pull the ladder up uh, behind them, things like that, that Mm -hmm. just, to my experience, has not been reflective of the conversation on the ground.
0: And I think that's a very valuable point. And I think that, you know, often what I want to be doing in these conversations is trying to turn the temperature back down, because I do feel like it gets turned up by sort of folks who are profiting off of the conflict that goes into that higher temperature. Um, and so I think, you know, it's valuable. And that's, that's what you know, why I wanted to have you on for this chat is that like, I think it's valuable for people to hear the nuts and bolts of the tracking conversation and understand that this is not cartoonish villainy one way or the other, that there really is a genuine debate being had in education about what is the best way to, you know, address these problems, especially while we're trying to and continuing to fail to address the like larger economic or systemic problems that we might feel like are exacerbating our concerns here. So um, I I need to wrap us up here. Before we go to uh, the enlightening round, though, um, I like to sort of ask, are there, you know, y'all did a really good job in your article at the end of each section being like, here's our preferred resources for this particular part of the question. And I recommend folks check those resources out. Was there like one or two resources in particular in your journey through this conversation that you feel like really affected your perspective or hit you hard in, in your thinking? so uh
1: as far as things that really affected my perspective and hit me hard um i'll give uh the one that emotionally hit me hard um, and then i'll give the one that gives the best practical on the ground information so the one Mm -hmm. that emotionally hit me hard is maraca gross's research on uh, uh exceptionally gifted children as she termed them in australia where she went around and she took students who Uh, on IQ tests scored um, above 160. So this is like students who were one in 10,000 on those tests, basically. Everyone she could find in there and she tracked them in their experience through schools. Um, One of those students uh, in that study was mathematician Terence Tao, who uh, wound up being one of the most brilliant theoretical mathematicians of our day and made a lot of really... Uh, meaningful contributions. His experience in education was this very bespoke, personalized, uh, looking at his needs, accelerating him several grades, accelerating him quickly, uh, pushing him in every regard, and he flourished through it. Mm -hmm. A bunch of other students who were tested initially at the same level as him and who did not have that same level of acceleration uh just ended up staying in normal classes ended up uh burning out on school some of them dropping out of university most Mm -hmm. of them not reaching anywhere near the same intellectual heights as him reporting boredom reporting frustration reporting discouragement just this sphere of really negative experiences and that's maraca Gross's uh exceptionally gifted children uh is her Mm -hmm. research on that so that's that's the emotional one that really impacted my view of some of these things um in terms of just a really solid fact-based breakdown of the topic tom loveless is who i recommend most strongly um Mm -hmm. he has a 1998 policy paper and a 2016 piece uh on brookings i can send both of those to you but he's very reliable and straightforward on the topic
0: Okay, great. Well, with that, I unfortunately now have to torture you. So, this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? That's your only choices. You don't get to hedge. You don't get to explain what real means. Real or not real. All right? Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So... First of all, just to check, is anything real? Yes. All right, so let's find out what is real. The external world, real or not real? Real. Colors. Real. Phenomenal consciousness. Real. Free will. Definitely real. (laughs) Selves or persons. Real. Genders. Not real. Races? Real. Species? Real. Morality? Real. Rights? Mm. Not real. Knowledge? Not real. God or gods? Not real. Society. Real. Money. Real. Numbers. Real. Fictional characters. Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches.
1: Real and uh, in my stomach.
0: Oh, there you go. Science. Real. Natural laws. Real. Beauty. Real. Love. Real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. Real. All right. You survived. How do you feel?
1: I feel... Uh... I feel real.
0: Yeah. you got quite a realist bent there. Don't you? Yeah. A lot of real things in your ontology. Yeah. Great. Well, Trace, it's been a lot of fun. Um, maybe stick around me a little bit. We can chat some more for VIP listeners about uh, some of the more details of the the tracking debate. Um, But before we get to that, do you want to let folks know where they can find your work?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Trace Woodgrains. Um, i am terrible at tweeting it's not my medium but um i you know i try there and i do put links to my long form pieces there which end up scattered right now scattered in a few different locations but the most important ones i put at tracingwoodgrains.medium.com you can also listen to uh the work i do research for and do a lot of the background uh for at locked and reported uh Podcast by uh Jesse Single and Katie Herzog. Um mm-hmm. and yeah, I'd say those are the most I guess those and Reddit. I'm mm-hmm. uh, around on Reddit in a fair few places getting in arguments and posting a lot of uh long,
0: okay. long threads <laughs> that nobody really uh, <laughs> fair enough.
1: Yeah. It it but yeah, those are the main places.
0: All right, sounds like we need to get you tracked into some catch-up tweet courses or something. Probably. In the meantime. I'm, I'm an abysmal tweeter. Fair enough. It's okay. We're not all gifted on the tweeting front. Um, but this, I'm glad you reached out, and I'm glad we got to have this chat. Um, and like I said, for folks who would like to hear more about this, um, you know, join us on Patreon and stick around for a little bit. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks, as always, to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patron, longtime friend of the show, Cognitive Dissonance Podcast. Definitely check them out if for some reason you haven't already. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T., any election lawyers want to pioneer a case on the California Fair Maps Act, fix the vote, dude, you think social media is toxic, you should try 150 nanograms of botulinum, and Lawrence Shielding. and All the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslitch. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter, at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, Consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, whatever track you're on, you are the void and the void is you.